news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Today's guest was born in Boston and raised in Long Beach. After studying English at UCLA, and education at LMU, she taught middle school humanities for over a decade and survived. She's a teaching fellow for the Holocaust Center for Humanity and lives in Seattle with her husband and three young children. She likes crossword puzzles and being on or near the water without getting wet. It's my pleasure to welcome Lauren J.A. Bear. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. I was thrilled to be invited. I love the format of the podcast, and I'm such a fan of the Writer's Workshop model. I think it is beneficial to everyone, readers and writers, old and young. This is such a great opportunity for all of us to talk about craft. Amazing, Lauren. Thank you. 100% agree with you on that. So before we dive into today's critiques, etc, etc, we just want to mention Lauren's book that we're going to be talking about a little bit later. It's called Medusa's Sisters. Lauren, will you give our listeners an overview of what the book is about? I would love to. Medusa's Sisters, which comes out on August 8th, is a retelling of the Medusa myth centered, however, upon her sisters, Steno and Eurylee, 
the sisters who were cursed alongside their famous sister Medusa, what their lives and those dynamics were from birth to Perseus and then beyond. You know, our listeners often ask us in terms of publishing trends, what we're seeing, what publishers like, what readers like. And you can never write towards a trend because by the time you've finished the book and you've published it, the trend is generally pretty much over. But we are seeing a trend towards these kinds of books like Circe and the Song of Achilles, etc. So we, we're seeing a lot more of these books coming out. Was it a case of you started working on this book long before the trend or was it that you were actually able to spot the trend, write the book, and get it out on time. Yes, that's a great point. I think that in general, in the world right now, we have a hunger for counter-narratives. We like to challenge the stories we've been told or given because we are asking better questions and we're caring a lot more about perspective. And I find this very deeply cool. The idea for Medusa's sisters, though, wasn't necessarily because I was super on trend. It was due to a sleep-deprived, delirious moment of nursing my daughter. So this is 2017. My my middle child was born, my only daughter, and I was up nursing her. And 3 a.m. is sometimes when divine inspiration hits or just mad questions. And so I had this wonder about Medusa knowing she was a Gorgon, but who were the other Gorgons? So I'm pulling my phone over the baby's head and I go on Wikipedia, of course, to look up Medusa. And there's a quote from a classicist that says, the sisters don't matter. They are appendages to Medusa. And I'm holding my little girl. It's 2017. The world is kind of turned upside down. And it was a really powerful moment for me feeling like no woman is ever an appendage. And I became a little obsessed with these Gorgon girls and finding out more about them. And when I couldn't find anything, creating for them a more powerful narrative. I love that in terms of no woman is an an appendage and because we know better and we can reframe stories these days from our current perspective. I'm always saying what freaks me out is when I hear about a woman who's gone missing or something terrible's happened to her, what they focus on in the stories is that she was someone's wife, she was someone's mother, and her value seems to be in her relationships to other people, and that always infuriates me because I know she was herself, and therein lay her value, you know? Were you interested, Lauren, in Greek mythology before this thought came to you? Was it something that you had studied and were interested in, and so you just had to do a deeper dive, or was it this thought just you know, forced you to have to do a ton of research. I was teaching middle school humanities at the time. And in the sixth grade curriculum, you do ancient civilizations. So I do think that the myths were kind of percolating, right, in my head when I had this thought with my baby in the nursery. That being said, when I decided to pursue this project seriously, I had to go to the primary source material. And I spent about two years really digging into the classics and looking for them, for Steno and Uriley, for Medusa, for other characters that I found associated with their stories to try to find as much research as possible, as much actual fact for whatever that means in a mythological world where, you know, people have forked tongues. And then once I had the facts laid out, these puzzle pieces, putting them together into a more compelling narrative. And then because there was so there were so many gaps in the story 
I really got to have fun and use my own imagination to really give them an adventure. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, we talk about people with forked tongues in mythology. You only have to spend five minutes on Twitter to know that there are a lot of people with forked tongues these days as well. Most of them barbed forked tongues. Right. Okay. So what we're going to do now before we carry on chatting with Lauren about a book is we are going to push it to Cece. Cece, will you please read us your query letter? Let's do this. Dear Cece, thank you for your invaluable guidance on Tease Not Ya podcast, which is always so helpful. Based on your manuscript wishlist interest in family stories with a strong sense of place, I hope you will enjoy my 75,000 word upmarket 1980s historical fiction, Penny on the Track. A withdrawn son returns home to care for his ailing mother and confronts the ramifications of his role in his best friend's deadly accident a decade earlier. It stitches the later in life coming of age with marrying the ketchups by Jennifer Close with the return to a small town and romantic subplot of Linda Holmes's flying solo. Burdened by guilt, broke 28-year-old Asher Hayes avoids his hometown of Beacon, New York, and the people in it, ever since his best friend Gus's death a decade earlier. When his beloved Ma is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he returns to interim caretake while plotting to sell his childhood house to fund her nursing care. First, the house needs repairs. The local contractor is his high school nemesis, now married to Asher's childhood love, reigniting a bitter rivalry. Forced to remain in town longer than anticipated, Asher navigates an ill-timed, blossoming romance and the fractured relationships he abandoned after Gus died. Soon, he unearths secrets about Gus that betray the memories he's long clung to and tailspins the life he thought he wanted. With Ma's health rapidly declining and issues with the house compounding, Asher must find the courage to reconcile with the past before it dictates his and Ma's future. I hold a BA in French and English Literature from Vassar College and a Master's in Psychoanalytical Psychology from University of London College. Asher's struggle with his mother's flailing memory touches on personal experience with familial dementia. By day, I'm a digital advertising executive and mentor at Girls Right Now. On the weekends, my husband and I explore the nooks and crannies of Charleston, South Carolina, where we've recently migrated from New York City. Thank you for your consideration. May I send you the full manuscript? Best, Nola Solomon. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, and Girls Right Now is an amazing, amazing organization. So shout out to them and shout out to Nola for mentoring me. Okay, Cece, how many words was that in the query letter and what was your take on that? This one came in at 331 words, which is an excellent word count. Yeah, this is overall a super well-written query letter. If it showed up in my inbox, I'd eagerly scroll down to read the pages because I really just do have a really great understanding of what the story is about and how the tone of the book will work because of the comps. It's an absolutely excellent query letter. Since I'm critiquing it, I will ask, is it intentional that we don't know the life he wants? There's a clause that reads, tailspin the life he thought he wanted. We don't get anything on that. And I'm not really missing it necessarily for the query letter just because I love how tight it is. But I am wondering whether that's intentional. And when it comes to the relationships, I really like the world's collide of like the fact that the local contractor is his high school nemesis who now married the girl he loved. Actually, I don't know if it's a girl. Who now married the person he loved. 
My question though is, is this going to come into play with the secret as well? Because that's another thing that you really want in a relationship-driven book. Like you want that ping pong effect. It's not even a domino effect, right? You like you want that ball to be bouncing around, just affecting absolutely everything in all the relationships. So it's a question I have, but it's not something that I would worry about if I were the writer. Like this is truly, truly excellent. You've done a wonderful job. It's so polished and absolutely great. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Can you give us an overview of what was in those opening pages? So we have the protagonist trying to get into his apartment, but his key isn't working. So he's essentially losing the battle with the door. It's 2 a.m. He's in Rome. He's clearly like had a little bit of alcohol. He shouts to his landlord who comes down and the key works. And his landlord asks him, when am I going to get the three months worth of rent that you've been owing me? And, you know, he thinks to himself that he'll have the money tomorrow. And he tells the landlord that. He's not entirely sure in his head. He receives a birthday postcard from his mom and notices that it's postmarked late and then remembers how she also missed a recent phone call with him, but he tells himself not to worry that it's just a coincidence. He sees a violin, which reminds him of Gus. And back when he was trying to open the door, he broke wine and it was red wine and it also reminded him of Gus and the blood. Um, and without, with Gus gone, now that he's looking at the violin, there's no music in his life. And he looks at his gambling winnings and thinks that, you know, tomorrow he'll, he'll hopefully be able to win some more money so he can pay rent. And he's about to drift to sleep when there's a bang on the door. Okay, so quite a bit there in those opening pages. Did they work for you? They are definitely doing a lot. We're always in scene. I was always very clear on the nuts and bolts of scene, like setting, who was speaking, what was interiority, what was dialogue. So there's definitely a lot to, to compliment here. What I'm wondering, and this might be entirely a matter of taste, is whether the protagonist is anticipating things too correctly. Number one, so for example, the fact that the birthday card was postmarked two days later and then the phone call, it's almost like he's anticipating that she'll have Alzheimer's, which we know she will based on the query letter. So having the protagonist anticipate that is kind of a tension league for my taste. I just don't think that it's realistic also. Usually these things, they surprise us. Even if in the back of your head you were worried about it, it's not going to be populating your interiority in that moment. So that was one thing. And then the other thing is, the references to Gus, they were a bit too explanation heavy for my taste. So when he breaks the wine, for example, he says, like Gus's blood oozed through the gravel beneath the railroad tracks back home in Beacon. And then later there was, again, no music with Gus gone with the violin. Because this is going to be about Gus, right? The fact that he's thinking about Gus so much it feels on the nose. I know that it's a weird thing to say because, you know, if I were the writer, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like the book is about him making peace with his role in that accident. So of course it's going to be on the nose. But I almost feel like there's something, there's value to having the protagonist not thinking, not think about the the plot points that are going to jolt him back into his town, right? Like his mom's Alzheimer's, the accident. He has a life now. There, He's in Rome. It's two in the morning. He has people there, and yet he's not thinking about any of the people in his life there now, even if the relationships are totally superficial, by the way. So I don't know. For me, it was a little bit on the nose. I am wondering whether you can make this more subtle, but it might just be a matter of taste. It might also be that you referenced comps that, that are more on the subtle side, or at least Jennifer Close. I don't know about the other book. So that might also be messing with my opinion here. 
I would also consider a timestamp just because you mentioned, and you did a really good job, right? But you mentioned like Rome and 2 a.m. and the year 1987 all in his head. And it didn't feel necessarily super natural for first person for him to be thinking about it. So I would just use a timestamp, which just seems like a huge time saver to me. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right. So we're coming back to Lauren J.A. Bear, the author of Medusa's Sisters. Lauren starts off Medusa's sisters with a prologue and you know on the podcast we're always like should you start with a prologue etc etc this one works incredibly well in terms of setting the tone narrative voice so I'm actually going to ask Lauren to read the first part of the prologue for us yes I did start with a prologue and I knew you guys were going to ask me about it but here's the thing if you're writing about Medusa you just have to address the elephant in the room right away. She is going to get her head chopped off. We all know this. So when I was constructing the plot sequence, I thought, I'm going to do it right away. I'm going to cut her head off in the first opening chapter, intentionally to throw my readers off guard. Because now they're going to go, well, if we've already seen her head chopped off, we already know how Steno, who's the first person voice, feels about it. What else is coming? So those were my intentions for this prologue. And here is the opening prologue to Medusa's Sisters. I hate the number three. It's an unholy character. Complicated, messy, confrontational, small and odd and prime. It was my identity and then it wasn't. Now I'm haunted by its prevalence. Mathematicians may argue three is beautiful. Take the perfection of an equilateral triangle, for instance, or solving proportions with the rule of three. There exists a theory of triangulation that within the unique power of triangles, truth is always revealed. Ah, scientists slobber like ravenous dogs over three. States of matter, the dimensions of space, solid liquid gas, land, sky, water, sun, moon, and stars. Three is human life, mind, body, and soul. It's ritual, morning, noon, and night. Three meals a day, three trimesters of pregnancy. It's also dramatic. Aristotle's three unities. Aeschylus's trilogy, beginning, middle, and end, past, present, future. Within my own world, three appears with cruel frequency. Beasts with triforked tongues or triple heads. Cronus and Rhea had three sons and three daughters. The oracle at Delphi's tripod. All us weird sisters, the three fates and furies, three graces, three harpies, or the nine muses, multiples of three. The triple goddess Hecate made mother and crone whom we would witness transform throughout cultures, beneath hegemonies across time and place, Poseidon's trident, the three maiden goddesses. The geometry of hearts, minds, and souls, however, obeys no law of balance. There is no perfect trinity, for three connotes competition, power struggles, favoritism, and loneliness. We were almost not a trio, although now that she's gone, neither of us feels like a duo. We are not twins, nor will we ever be. Our third was the center, and when we lost her, we also failed each other, collapsing inward upon ourselves. A broken triplet, thrice-blessed, thrice-cursed. Our tragedy is a famous one, devoured and regurgitated, sensationalized, of course, misrepresented, a trio of malevolence. And the youngest? Well, that depends upon whom you ask. A symbol of wrath and rage, but also sex and desire. Every time her drama repeats erroneously, she dies again, and our stories, our survival, become even further removed from the annals of history. We have lived long enough to watch heroes become monsters. We oversaw the emergence of gods and welcomed their disappearance. 
kingdoms raised then set to flames endlessly over and over again different casts and settings same plot life adapts it evolves yet betrayal in word and deed by lover and kin remains remarkably the same perfidy by jealousy and by love for we are women still despite what we were made to be ageless and anonymous immortal and ignominious fameless and feared yet nameless we know you have never heard of us but that is no bother we stopped caring a long long time ago back on those rocks that beach surrounded by the waves that crashed unceremoniously at the right of her immortality when our sister finally achieved what she was denied at our birth and became a legend our mortal sister is dead she was medusa and we are the gorgons that prologue gave me such goosebumps i think i read it five times it was just incredible so lauren firstly did you straight out the gate start with that prologue or was it something you had to write the whole book and then you came back to that and how long did that take you because it's just so polished and it just sets the tone perfectly for everything that is to come thank you i really appreciate those kind words i hate the number three came instantly but then I really meditated on three and how often I see it in my life, in all of our lives. And that was kind of fun to explore. I did start with that. I started from the prologue and proceeded from there. What I knew is that when I was writing the story, both sisters were going to be given perspective. But I only gave one sister a first person voice. The other I tell with a third person voice. And that was about access and personality and feeling like the sister who starts the story is the more open sister. And the sister who follows her, Uriley, she is more closed off. Access is a privilege and that's something that this character was not going to give as easily. So I knew I needed to start with Steno, who is the oldest sister. And I knew she was going to full on address the great tragedy of their lives, which is Medusa's death. For our listeners, what Lauren has just said is so important in terms of intentionality with which character you begin with, especially if you've got a dual POV novel, which one are you going to present first? It shouldn't just be, oh, well, this is the one I thought of first. It really needs to be done with great, great intentionality, as does choosing the POV you're writing from, you know, whether it's first person, third person, really circle that and and kind of have it so that if somebody suddenly you know corners you somewhere one day and it's like why did you write this character in first person you immediately can justify that almost as if you're on trial and you can 100% justify that behavior it shouldn't be something that you just accidentally fall into um, and the ordering of things as well should be incredibly intentional as well my youngest son starts kindergarten this year I can't believe it one of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. All right, Lauren, we will chat a little bit more about the book. But for now, could you please read us your query letter? Dear Miss Waters, thank you for all the work you do to help authors succeed and for considering my query. I'm reaching out because of your interest in post-1920s historical fiction with strong female leads. After moving her mother, a famed opera star of the 1950s, into assisted living, cafe owner Lena finds an old diary that unlocks the secret of her birth, set against the backdrop of redacted material. My novel, A Vanished Life, is complete at 100,000 words. Taylor Jenkins reads... The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo meets Actress by Anne Enright, told in alternating voices, perfect for fans of Kristen Hanna. A Vanished Life is a dual timeline novel that follows three women, an opera star, a seamstress, and a cafe owner. The 1950s storyline is based on Redacted's life during the production of Redacted. 
The fictionalized storylines make up the retelling of the opera in which an ill-fated love triangle leads to a lifelong secret. In the now of the story, Lena wants to succeed without the help and connections of her celebrity mother. Though she runs a thriving cafe downtown, she can't help but feel it could all slip away. Now 40 years old with a failing relationship, no children, and an eccentric aging mother, Lena needs something to cement her success. She needs to buy out her cafe space, but the money always feels just out of reach. When she discovers her mother's diary, Lena is pulled away from her cafe and toward the mother she barely knows. Lena always blamed her mother for her parents' divorce. But as she uncovers what happened 40 years ago, when the opera that should have solidified her mother's career into lasting fame flopped, she comes to learn there was another player involved. It wasn't just redacted that vanished from the world. It was also the seamstress. I attended the Columbia Publishing course in 2014, and after a period of internships and agency work, I decided I was more suited to the creative side of the industry. I completed my MFA in 2020, where I had the pleasure of working with Redacted. That same year, I received over 40 full requests for my thesis manuscript, but sadly, it did not find a home. May I send you the complete manuscript? Warmly redacted. Wonderful, Lauren. Thank you so much. Okay, Cece, will you give us the word count there and your take on that? This one came in at 380 words. Great length. That first paragraph, like, gosh, I wish we could read the redacted part and I totally respect why you don't want us to, but I wish all the listeners could know how compelling that hook is. I really, really love the hook. This is exactly the sort of historical fiction that I'm looking for. Because I think it's so cinematic and so interesting. So very, very compelling. Okay, plot paragraphs. This is where I have lots of questions. Lena runs a thriving cafe, but she can't help but feel it could slip away. That that was odd to me. I was like, why? Like intuition? Like like why? Because it just it's not the most compelling setup, right? Like imagine so-and-so as a really um, successful, thriving business, but she feels it could slip away. Don't get me wrong. I know that that's actually quite realistic because in real life we do have anxiety for absolutely no logical reason. I am the queen of that, but it's not necessarily the most compelling moment to start your hero's journey. So I would look into that. I would look into making her present day quest more urgent, more compelling, Some maybe somehow tied to her mom's secret. Like maybe she needs help from her mom and her mom who always helps her is refusing this one thing. And, you know, she takes matters into her own hand and goes digging and then finds something else. I don't know. I just think it should be tied because when you when you do that, you create that pressure cooker situation, which is so compelling in stories. And then I'm also not clear on the POV situation. I know it's dual timeline, but are we getting three points of view, meaning two points of view in the past and then one in the present? I don't necessarily need to know now, but because the seamstress is a part of the dun-dun-dun sentence, it reads, it wasn't just redacted that vanished from the world. It was also the seamstress. But I don't know anything about the seamstress. I kept thinking, okay, maybe we could get a line on the seamstress. I know the query letters on the longer side, but I would personally prefer another sentence to really add to that, even if it does mean upping the word count a little bit. I was curious. And absolutely, yes, a super well-written query letter. I would have scrolled down. I would have eagerly read the pages because the hook is very compelling. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Lauren, was there anything you wanted to add in terms of the query letter? Cece, I had the same notes as you, almost exactly. I would add that it's so impressive to have 
an MFA and those writing credentials that you have. I don't have an MFA. I thought that was fantastic. And seeing that you are trying again after what you went through in your first attempt just shows so much grit. And I really commend you for that. I think the difference between an amateur and a professional when it comes to writing is simply this, you keep going and you are doing that. So my hat is off to you. Amazing. I think we're going to have to put that on one of our Tuesday quotes. I couldn't agree more. Right. So Lauren, can you give our listeners an overview of what was in the pages and then your take on them? Absolutely. In the pages that follow, Lena is arriving at her mom's fancy New York City apartment to pick up things that her mom now needs from the assisted living environment. As she walks into the apartment, she's thinking about the last time she was there, which is the moment when her mom needed to go to assisted living. That is, it's the moment when her mom puts a microwavable plastic dinner into the oven and kind of sets her apartment on fire. And the social services agent and the building manager want Eloise out of the building. Wonderful. Okay, so what did you think of the opening pages? I am already obsessed with Eloise. I want to know more about her. I just have a thing for eccentric, crazy, old, rich ladies living in fancy apartments. So I want more details about her, and I want more details about Lena. When we go into the apartment, there are a lot of descriptions of the two men that were there, talking to Eloise about the fire. That's great, but I would rather have descriptions of the women. More details, more surprising and exact adjectives, you know, and maybe exaggerate Eloise a little bit. I was writing some notes to myself, like, I want to hear about, like, the vintage Oscar de la Renta caftan she's wearing while her house burns, and the full stage makeup, and the false eyelashes melting from the acrid smoke, and she's got her, you know, Pepto-pink lacquered nails, Like, give me diva, Maria Callas La Divina. And then in contrast, there's her daughter who has a coffee stain on, you know, her ex-boyfriend's Foo Fighter shirt. You know, I think also you can up the stakes a little. Go scorched earth on this apartment. Like, this fire was major. It was bad enough that this woman now has to leave her fabulous apartment for assisted living, which must be such a, a blow to her pride. I also thought there's this really great line that Eloise gives to her daughter where she says, I should at least get a say in where I die, she said. Lena hadn't thought of what it would be like when Eloise died. Not really. So here's the thing. Your mother turning to you and saying, I should at least get a say in where I die. Like, boom, this is so powerful. But then Lena has more of a tepid reaction. And maybe that is her character. But I also thought this is such a moment to explore her interiority. This is the heartbeat moment, I thought, of the sample pages. So let us feel Lena's heart. Like how how does she show that stress, that fear, that exhaustion, that heartbreak on her physical body when her mother says this to her, if that makes sense. Also, you know, we talked about beginnings already in this podcast and where we begin is so important. The first paragraph of these sample pages is not actually the opening scene. It's her, Lena's walking into the apartment to get her mom's things, but then the majority of the pages is this past moment when her mom set the fire in the kitchen. 
when she's walking into the apartment, she's feeling all these haunting feelings. And I think you could play with that more, how it feels to walk into this apartment that's abandoned, the ghosts of her mother, build some tension there, and then maybe use a little more summarized time for talking about what happened with the building manager and the social service agent. Those are kind of my ideas for that, even cutting the dialogue of the men if needed. I think that I want to know more about Lena, what she wants, what she thinks she wants, and what is standing in her way. And I want to know more about Eloise as well. Wonderful, Lauren. Thank you. Right, now we're going to go to Carly. Will you please read us your query letter? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I hope you will consider my query for a literary fiction slash book club novel. I enjoy your podcast immensely, and please know you're doing great things for all of us writers out here. What happens when a baby is given up to adoption? Is it a simple question of best outcome? The Salt Marsh stories set in the baby scoop era chronicles one mother and one baby, but it ultimately illuminates a family taint set in motion centuries earlier. Set on the Connecticut shoreline, this 100,000-word novel is about an unwed teenage mother, the baby she gave away, and the licit daughter she had later. Their lives parallel and finally intersect in an unpredictable, haunting, and beautiful way, laying bare the mysterious bond of family that forgives the unforgivable. Dauphine Chatham, a headstrong teen living with her grandparents outside the normal gentilly of their blue-blooded Mayflower family, finds herself pregnant at 15. Giving up the baby she vows to forget it ever happened, leaves town by hitching her wagon to a bright young man doing a PG year at a nearby boarding school. She drives Richard Nicolau, the first to leave his tight-knit main clan of Portuguese fishermen, to attain a life of wealth and social prominence, their marriage continually challenged by Dauphine's secret baby. Margaret Stockwell, a brilliant art curator and witty raconteur, lives with a hole in her otherwise enriched life, knowing her mother and father. Queer with a predilection for addictive behavior, Margaret searches for her birth family, the only thing that fills her despite her achievements, friends, lovers, and family. Jane Harper grows up in an affluent but troubled home with a mother who is there but not there, a father who buries himself in work, and a brother whose emotional neglect leads to serious substance abuse. Jane succeeds outwardly but is unable to overcome the effects of her unraveled family, her own lack of self-worth and ability to trust, sensing it may go back generations. Separately and together, Margaret and Jane uncover the patriarchal society that makes up their past, what means their ancestors took to survive in 1621 in Plymouth, Massachusetts, when Elizabeth Tilly moved into the house of John Carver and his manservant, John Howland. Near death from battling breast cancer, Dauphine concedes to meet Margaret and opens up about herself and in a surreal moment, recalls embedded trauma, remembering the moment of Margaret's conception and last identifying her biological father. There is not time for reconciliation, but redemption looms for Dauphine and releasing more of the secrets recharts the path of family ethos for Margaret Jane and those who follow. The Salt Marsh Stories is a work of literary and women's fiction that finds inspiration from Fellowship Point by Alice Elliott Dark, Mona Simpson's The Lost Father, Joanne Beard's Lost Boys of Summer. I am a former associate editor at Travel and Leisure Magazine and City Court Publishing. I have published numerous articles in nonfiction and in fiction, most recently, 34th Parallel Magazine. I received an MA in fiction from Sarah Lawrence College and a BA from University of Pennsylvania. I have included the first five pages for your perusal. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Deborah Thompson. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? 
All right. I think everybody knows this is a bit of a long one. So this was 545 words. This was a really wordy query. I know you guys are privy to all the edits and cuts we make behind the scenes here, but I actually had, I had to say again, a number of sentences and stop and, and do it all over again because it just wasn't sounding right. So this one was quite hard in terms of a read aloud for me, which maybe says to me, the sentences were a little bit more complex than they needed to be. So first of all, I would just cut the questions at the top here. They're kind of rhetorical at the end of the day. I mean, we know this is about adoption. So, you know, those questions I think are things that the reader is going to ask themselves. So I think that's okay. In terms of the title. So the Salt Marsh stories is actually quite hard to say aloud. And it also makes me think that this was a short story collection, but I'm really not led to believe that it is. So stories, as I said, suggest short stories. So I would really, I would definitely change this. So the sentence about their lives parallel and finally intersect and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, we kind of know that from the earlier words in the paragraph. So I'm not sure, again, whether we need that element there. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the third paragraph. And if there's a lot of content here, there's a lot of names, there's acronyms, there's different dates. Like I, I was just a bit confused about how historical this was because we talk about the Mayflower and 1621 in Plymouth. Like how much are we kind of bouncing around here? I just have a lot of questions about how much we're trying to tackle in this novel. And it kind of feels like a lot. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the, the marriage that was continually challenged. So how was it challenged? Was it physically challenged? Was it challenged in her mind? I think we just have to be a bit more clear about that level of, of information. Next, we, as I said, we introduce a lot of characters in this body paragraph. So to me, like every time we introduce a new character, we should potentially have a new paragraph just because again like if there if there is multiple main characters that's kind of what we might need but the more we go on the more we kind of meet so many characters that I was a bit confused about who is the main character and and why we're just meeting so many other characters like the whole paragraph is really a character study not a whole lot of plot so I still don't really know what the book is about I wish I had a lot more clarity into this project but I think the the body paragraph needs some work great okay what was in those opening pages so we start with a chapter one, New Essex, Connecticut, 1938. And it says Dauphine, this character, and we figure out that she is at home, potentially alone, but just her and she's four years old and a baby. The baby is crying and has a wet diaper. She doesn't really know how to console this infant because she's four. So she kind of wanders out of the house, goes to the neighbor who sometimes feeds her and just kind of like wanders off into the road to kind of go for a little wander because she's four. And a neighbor is tired of seeing the neglect. So we have a kind of an omniscient third here. Narrator is tired of seeing this neglect, calls the police. The police show up, knock on the door. The mom and dad were there, but they were kind of like sleeping and the dad potentially drunk and the mom didn't look very well in terms of potentially some some battery in terms of her physicality and her dress was ripped and the police start to take the children away. And those are her pages. Okay, so... I want to point out something that I think the author did really, really well here. So I kind of want to just highlight this Dauphine character. As I said, she's four years old. And I think this author does such a great job here of showing at the same time how old and how young she is, right? Because four can be old, right? Like four isn't an infant, but four is still very young because she's a child. So I just wanted to highlight this. Dauphine was four years old and had dressed herself in a pair of red overalls and a natty little blue corduroy jacket. Her black Mary Jane shoes were buckled carefully. Onto the wrong feet. 
brilliant. I loved that. It was like she, she was able to get dressed, but only so far as to put the items on, but she had the shoes on the wrong feet. So I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that line. The other thing that's interesting is that the head hopping happens here. So it's like completely omniscient in the sense, like we know what's happening with the neighbor. We kind of know what's happening with the police, but we're following Dauphine really closely. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to point out that I thought this was, this was really interesting, but in terms of like intensity, really, really well done on these pages. There's just so much happening. And sometimes with historical it can be a little quiet and a little internal. So I really found these pages stronger than the query letter, which is a good thing to be, but we do want the query letter to be as strong as the pages, of course. So well done. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, we've got time for one more question for Lauren now before we have to say goodbye. Lauren, something that I would like to get your advice for our listeners on is really setting the tone for a piece because it's not enough in in pages to reveal character, to set up a premise, to plant curiosity seeds. You need to have it straight out the gate in terms of setting the tone. If you're writing a satirical novel, the reader needs to understand a few pages in that this is a whimsical sort of satirical wry voice. I say to many emerging writers when they write, if they are overly formal when it comes to genre fiction, I say you're using corporate speak. Your day job is bleeding over into your writing. These are much more chilled characters. Have them use contractions. Have them sound much more conversational. Don't go for the really complicated word choice because it doesn't suit this particular romance or whatever the case may be is. Obviously, with the book you have written, you are trying to set the tone that is very similar almost to the source material that you are writing about. So can you tell us a bit about how you approached that to really nail the tone here? Yes, that is such good advice to give to writers. Establishing a tone, establishing a voice is really one of the first decisions you need to make as you set out to write. And what I've even noticed in my writing process is sometimes by the time I get to the end of the novel, if I haven't been intentional enough with myself, the voice has changed. And then I need to go back to the beginning and make sure that I address that and I fix it so that the voice stays consistent or the tone stays consistent throughout the novel. With Medusa Sisters, yes, I'm writing about antiquity. So, you know, this is not lit fam. You know, I need to speak in a way that feels organic to that world. At the same time, it needs to appeal to a modern reader. So I think you have to strike that delicate balance. I also was really inspired by Greek tragedy and the plays of Greek tragedy when I was writing Medusa Sisters. And that kind of allowed me to be more lyrical in the way I was writing because I thought of it like a drama. I love, love, love all of Anne Carson's translations of ancient Greek material because they are so strong and brilliant and modern with this old material, very cannot recommend her enough. The other thing I did when I was trying to establish a tone for Medusa Sisters, knowing that it was an older source material, was I started taking a lot of classes with poets. And Seattle has a really fantastic writing program, the Hugo House. And I took as many classes with poets as I could, even though I was a fish out of water. I'm a genre fiction writer. But the way poets think about surprising and exact details, the way they think about excess in language, the way they take their tiny little wrenches and tighten the words on the line was a game changer for me. So I highly recommend fiction writers 
find some poet friends because they will make you a better writer. Amazing advice. And yeah, for our listeners, you know, you may be a very lyrical kind of writer, but if the story you're telling is not particularly lyrical or literary, then you letting your voice get in the way of what their character is trying to do. So always think about who the character is, what genre it is, what kind of tone you want to set and approach all of your language choices from that perspective. Right, Lauren, thank you so, so much for joining us. We loved the book and we loved chatting with you for our listeners. We're linking to Medusa's Sisters on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go over there, get the book, support Lauren, support an independent bookstore and support the podcast at the same time. We hope to have you back next time, Lauren. Thank you so much. I will join you ladies anytime. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.